If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and this week I'm talking to Claire Hall, who lectures on ancient Greek science at Oxford, and has a piece in the current issue of the paper on ancient astrology. It's a review of a book called A Scheme of Heaven, Astrology and the Birth of Science by Alexander Boxer. Hello, Claire, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi. So to get the silly, obvious question out of the way, what star sign are you? I'm an Aquarius. I'm an Aries, very dominant. (laughs) <laughs> and as you say in the piece, that's sort of everyone, everyone knows that even, you know, no one believes it, but everyone knows it. And those signs of the zodiac are very ancient, that they go back to Greece and to Babylon. But for all sorts of reasons, that what star sign are you isn't a question that an ancient astrologer is likely to have asked of somebody. No, that's right. Because the, the concept of the star sign as being the kind of the most important bit of astrology is is really quite a modern invention, sort of, I think, post 19th century. And well, when we say star sign, what we really mean is the sun sign, the sign that the sun is in at the time of your birth. And so those are kind of month by month segments. But for for Greek astrologers, that's not as important. They're much more interested in the kind of whole array of, of the planets and, and all the different planets signs. And particularly, they're interested in what's coming up over the eastern horizon at the time of your birth, which is not the same or not necessarily the same as the sign that um, the sun is in. So they certainly wouldn't define themselves by their star signs in that way. It was usually a bit more of a complicated picture. So the zodiac, there are the, the as we look up into the night sky, those 12 signs, Capricorn, Aquarius, are the, are the constellations that we see around the horizon? They're the ones that the planets, so we're on a tilt, Earth is on a 23 degree tilt. And if you think of the solar system as a kind of flat, plane all of the planets are traveling around the sun in a flat plane and we're at a 23 degree angle to that but of course for for the ancients they thought about us as upright and so for them all the planets and everything went round at a 23 degree angle and so the zodiac is the kind of belt of constellations that all of the planets travel through as they go round so it's it's just this particular sort of belt through the night sky and we've already now we're talking about astronomy already rather than astrology we're talking about yeah. the actual what we can see when we look up in in the night sky and for a long time the ancient greeks didn't really make the distinction between astrology and astronomy they were both studies of the of the stars right and so one of the things that boxer mentions in his book is the fact that it's really quite late on it's only in about 200 ad or so that you start to get people linguistically differentiating between astronomy and astrology in a regular way and both the words astronomia and astrologia were used in greek but they were used pretty interchangeably and i suppose that that makes a lot of sense when you think about it if you have some general notion that you're in the earth at the center of the cosmos and that the stars have some influence on the earth or you're all part of this big unified system then the difference between looking up and observing the movements of the heavens and thinking about their effects on earth is not such a huge difference and it's only for us or for those of us who don't accept the fundamental claim of astrology that you can tell the future by the stars that those seem really different 
things. But for, for the ancients, I think, even for Ptolemy, who's one of the first people who starts to say, no, actually, let's separate these into two different things. He still sees astrology as following extremely naturally on from astronomy. Yeah. And and I said the idea, I mean, that Boxer takes it for granted that in a strict and contemporary sense, astrology is bullshit. And you know, there's very little arguing with that. But even so, the idea that what happens in the heavens might affect what happens on Earth isn't on the face of it irrational. I mean, in a sense, a tide table is a form of astrology, the movement, the, the when the the sun and the moon are in conjunction that it has this effect on the seas that if you don't know about gravity you must be exactly and in fact you know ancient people like like us predicted the weather and one of the one of the ways of predicting the weather uh, was to do with the stars and the not just the kind of regular cycles of the stars that tell you about the seasons and what's coming but but specific things like the lunar cycle or eclipses or things like that and they they looked at at the stars to predict the weather and we would think about that as a sort of scientific form of prediction but for them that in most cases that was no different from other forms of astrological prediction and Ptolemy who I've already mentioned wrote this kind of little handbook of astrology and uh, he treats the weather totally as uh, as a form of astrology predicting the weather is for him subsumed within astrology and it's a very legitimate uh, form of prediction. And their methods of predicting the weather how are they at all useful well i mean some of the things like oh if you know when the dog star appears that's a long hot summer whatever it is i can't remember the specifics but you know there are some things that have persisted as kind of well accepted things they have a version of um red sky at night shepherd's delight red sky in the morning shepherd's warning i don't know if that is actually accurate um (laughs) but many of the kind of folk sayings about the weather which presumably do have some empirical basis, are very similar in antiquity. I mean, of course, bearing in mind that that's a bit of a, you know, they're a bit of a geographical remove from weather sayings that you might encounter in the UK. But but nevertheless, I think, yeah, I think some of them do totally would work if you tried to apply them. Some of them, maybe less so. And isn't that one of the things that Boxer does in his book, as he, you say, he applies computational methods to to ancient astrology and there are some like he looks at the he tries to use ancient horoscopes to look at the stock market and things like that yeah so the stock market example is quite fun so so one form of astrology that was very popular was the casting of horoscopes for individual people and that's what we tend to think of generally as as the main kind of form of astrology but another thing that a lot of ancient astrologers did was um, you could go and consult them if you were planning to have an event say you were getting married or you were undertaking some kind of business venture or a voyage of course traveling um, by sea in antiquity was very dangerous so people often kind of wanted to get some assurance from from an astrologer and that type of astrology which is known as um well later it becomes known as judicial astrology general astrology something like that you could go and get predictions for events and that's the stock market example is something like that so this is a medieval example but it's um the italian renaissance astrologer um, bonatti guido bonatti who predict he gave a set of predictions about good times for buying and selling. And what Boxer does is he kind of makes an algorithm that follows Bonatti's advice and then plots that against um, what you would actually get on if, if you plotted that against a kind of tracker fund on the, on the Dow Jones. And how well did the, the Bonatti stocks perform? Less well than the index? Yeah, less well than the index. Not, not terribly, not, not worse than, you know, some other fund managers. I th- I'd say pretty average. <laughs> 
So it's, he's just doing a little kind of, oh, well, would this actually work if we applied it? He does a few other ones um, like that that are good. He does a, an example of trying to see whether um, Supreme Court justices in the US are more likely to be born in Le- uh, under the sign of Libra, which is a sign associated with justice. It's the one with the scales. And he finds, no, they're not. But he does find that if you plot, uh, he takes a, a, I can't remember the sample size, but several hundred, um, maybe it's hockey players, uh, professional hockey players, and he plots when they're born in the year. And he finds this quite well-known effect that we, we already know about from school-age cohorts, which is that people born in certain months of the year, and it tends to be it tends to be related to the cut-off times for age categories. So in, in the UK, if you're born in September, you're likely to do a bit better in school than if you're born in August because you're older in the year and so you have that advantage of being that bit older. And he thinks that's probably what's at play with the athletes. But of course, if you believed in the fundamental claim of astrology that, that the stars have something to do with our characteristics when we're born, you could quite easily say, well, no, it's not. It's that it's it's to do with, you know, Libras are just are just better at this or or Sagittarius's are better at that. So there are those effects of when you're born in the year that that make a difference. Um, so some of the things he plots, although we can find alternative explanations for them, they would make perfect sense as a sort of piece of astrological reasoning. But it's also a question of, and we all do this all the time, that the kind of we use the things that we are able to predict, the, the facts that we do know. We cling to them to maybe predict <laughs> as ways of predicting. We can only predict what we don't know using what we do know. And so we, we use the data available. I mean, something that was like, I suppose I'm quite superstitious about at the moment that you know, I, I look at the the COVID case numbers, everything every day, as if, as if the data were to, ha- as if there were anything I could do about it, or as if it would have any. Yeah, me too. I I remember at the start of the pandemic, looking every day at the case numbers, and and it's not like I understood the underlying mechanism for making those predictions. It's not like I understood the statistics, but it still felt a kind of, ah, well, at least we've got this amount of information, so we can sort of make some conjectures. And I think one of the points I make in the piece, which I think Boxer makes really eloquently. And and that, in fact, I don't, haven't really seen that much elsewhere in other discussions of astrology, is that compared to lots of other, lots of other sciences, but lots of other forms of prediction in antiquity, they just had a lot of data. You just, you just have a lot of moving parts in a, in a horoscope. You have where all the planets are and which sign of the zodiac they're in and what their relationships to each other are. And then you have this thing called the house system, which is kind of like the zodiac. It's, it's 12 sections again, but, but it's, it rotates in a way that the Zodiac doesn't, so it's not always tethered to the same place. And so you have all these different pieces of, of data that you can, you can say, oh, well, we've got you know, generally this tendency towards this, but then actually there's this thing pulling in the other direction. And, da, da, da. and so there's quite, there's quite a lot of you know, adding different bits of, of interpretation in. And, and I think that's, that's a point that he just makes very well, that actually you would trust the person who says, look, I've got all these different pieces of information to make this conjecture. I, oh, I know this extra thing that you don't. And I think that's how lots of us, you know, lots of us who aren't necessarily super scientifically literate, I think that's quite similar to the way we respond to to, to discussions of science in the public sphere. Oh, yeah, no, actually, they, they've said this extra bit that, you know, somebody else didn't mention. I trust them a bit more. 
And I think that's that was probably a big feature in in why astrology was so um, lasted such a long time and was was so powerful. And in terms of the astronomy, they they were able to predict sort of with incredible accuracy the movements of the the movements of the planets, and yeah, the stars, yeah, yeah. And, and that's one of the things that you say in the piece that astrological documents can be dated with incredible accuracy. Yeah, because because they describe we we can use them to say well this is when the stars and planets would have been in this position and we can work out what that was and they got it right so we can actually get these things right to the day. Right, which is is quite, kind of eerie in a way because you don't have that for other other sorts of texts. I mean, the the ways in which historical texts, Greek historical texts are usually dated is often if they mention any political figures, particularly if they mention sort of magistrates or people who held particular offices. That's a very classic way of dating kind of texts from um, classical Athens is to look at the list of the archons, the, the magistrates, and, and say, OK, well, so-and-so was magistrate then, so, oh, it's got to be in this window. And you you often just get these windows of time. Whereas, yeah, I mean, Vettius Valens, this... this um, one of the kind of major astrological rites of antiquity, again, from the, the late second, early third century. Like, we know his, his date of birth. It's, it's, that's quite weird. It was, there was a very interesting book in the 50s. Um, so Otto Neugebauer, who's kind of one of the major historians of, who trained as a mathematician, he took a very kind of mathematical approach. He wrote this book in the 50s called Greek Horoscopes, where he went through essentially all of the example horoscopes in Greek uh, astrological texts and he dated them precisely and and then he did it with this um this method using these strips of paper and lining things up obviously it's it's much easier to do now digitally but yeah it's quite strange to be able to pinpoint so exactly because sort of the counter example of that is there's the um robin lane fox's book about hippocrates and, and ancient medicine which james rom reviewed recently in rb and his that lane fox's argument that maybe the text that attributed to Hippocrates can be dated. I now can't remember this earlier or later. Sixty years earlier, I think. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, sixty years earlier because it's based on someone's someone's granddad. It's oh, is it him or is it his granddad? Yeah, that's that's very much the traditional kind of way of dating things, and and it allows those sorts of yeah, those sorts of conjectures to arise. Whereas this, I mean, astrology is mysterious in that when we have data, we have really precise data, but this whole enormous amounts of things that we know, you know, very little about. So it's this kind of weird mix of things that, uh, you know, we know an awful lot when we've, when we've been given particular horoscopes. But unless you're given that, you might know nothing. And, we, we, you know, the, it's, we don't know exactly when, when, for example, this whole sort of mathematized system of, of Greek horoscopy began. It's, that's quite mysterious. And that was for a long time in the literature, there's been a long argument ongoing that's still kind of ongoing about whether Greek astrology is more Egyptian or more Babylonian and how much was already done in Egypt or, or Babylon, how much of it is a kind of Greek invention. So there, there's this kind of huge vagueness, but there's also these tiny islands of huge precision um, within that, which is odd to work with. That question of the, so the Babylonian and Egyptian that you mentioned and which shows how much further back before the Greeks this goes. I mean, the Greeks obviously didn't didn't invent it, and nor did the Babylonians, presumably. That you say there are lunar calendars which are even older. 
yeah, and how old they are is is a bit contested. I mean, some are claimed to be Paleolithic, some maybe Neolithic, but certainly go they go back a long, 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 long way before writing. And and again, I suppose when you think about that, it, that's very natural in a sense if you think about um, the night sky as a kind of an overwhelming sensory experience but also just uh, it, it i think it must be the case that people have wondered about the heavens and how the world came to be and what you can know from the heavens since the dawn of time really i mean the dawn of time is a bit of an annoying phrase but it doesn't surprise me to think of of that kind of prediction going back a very long way i guess the question is part of what is interesting about the stuff on Greek astrology is how contiguous is that really with you know, so I mentioned this omen catalog this Babylonian omen catalog and you know I'm not a scholar of this stuff but those omen catalogs include a whole jumble of different types of omens and different types of predictions and some of them are about the stars some of them are about other things some of them are about how animals behave or things in the weather or they're a whole collection of different things. And we don't have a lot of contextual information about how these things were read and used. So I guess the the point being that, yes, prediction from the stars stretches back kind of infinitely far in time, but the, the, very, the very structured type of astrology that the Greeks are doing may in fact be a relatively late invention, say sort of 300s, BC. The idea that, that the heavens might have a kind of perfectly mathematical and mathematizable structure could could be a rather later one. Now, the the caveat to that is that there's there's also a fairly separate history of, of astrology in India and in China. I know less about both of those and, and Boxer doesn't talk about them either. And so this isn't a claim that the Greeks were the first to do it in a mathematical way, but certainly they were doing they were doing things to do with the kind of mathematics and geometry of the heavens that, that weren't necessarily there in the Babylonian or Egyptian sources. And did the Greeks rely on those other kinds of augurs as well? Did they, the way, as the Romans looked at the flight patterns of birds and the entrails of animals and that kind of thing, did the Greeks do that? Yeah, very much so. So one of the big, um, one of the really important kind of institutions of, of Greek future telling was the oracle at Delphi. And there were these various, I mean, there were oracle sites over various various other places as well. And those were um, much more of a kind of prophetic type of future telling. So one of the distinctions that people often draw is between what's sometimes called inspired divination, which is things like, you know, someone has inspiration and they start talking in tongues and raving or they, they just kind of spontaneously say a prediction. And another type that's, that's often referred to as inductive divination, which is where you use some equipment or some tools or you do a kind of technical thing. And astrology is sometimes seen as, as, as divination in, in that form rather than just as a science, but also as a kind of divination, which is usually used more by scholars of the history of religion. And, and that's something I'm quite interested in, you know, where you tip over in from religion and into science and whether there's a kind of boundary between those two things. And so, yes, they, were, they, they did all sorts of forms of prediction. I mean, both inspired and inductive, but there were, there were all sorts of other um, types of reading. The entrails was, was another form of, of Greek prediction. Yeah, 
it, it, astrology was really just one kind of piece in the in the marketplace of of uh, prophecy and and future prediction. And was it more it's sort of halfway but it's half inductive, half inspired? I mean, is that what you were saying that it? I think it's more inductive because it's it's the astrologers not expected to have some kind of you know prophetic trance descend on them or anything like that. They're they're clearly doing something quite technical and mathematical, and there's sometimes a perception that inductive um, forms of divination are a bit more like crafts or skills that you can learn rather than necessarily being things that you just have to have a kind of feel for or you have to be oh, specially picked out because you're very good at, you know, you're, you're just in touch with the gods or whatever. I think there is a sense that that if you go and learn to be an astrologer, you can learn the craft. And, and a lot of the texts that we have about astrology from antiquity are handbooks of one form or another which are trying to teach you how to cast horoscopes. Um, and so I think there is, yeah, there's a sense that it's a it's a learned craft and i think on the on the kind of more theoretical end it was very very respectable as well it was very seen as a very sort of intellectual craft i mean that's not to say that the guy peddling horoscopes you know in the marketplace was was kind of seen as a philosopher but certainly um writers like ptolemy certainly were seen as as yeah as intellectuals this was a, this was a kind of applied philosophy and what what was the connection between the the planets and the gods Except they had the same names, and did, did people? You look up in the sky, and that that bright one up there—that's that Zeus, that's Dias. Is that? Did people think they were looking at the distant gods, or was it as where they were associated with them in the way that a holy place on Earth might be associated with a god? I think that probably varied quite considerably. I think perhaps among the more kind of educated and intellectual writers there's a bit more of a distancing between the planets as things up there and the gods but clearly that mythological link is very strong and i mean it's very hard to know what ordinary people might have thought when they looked up at the sky whether they thought oh yeah that's saturn oh yeah that's that's jupiter and in different astrologers, different astrological writers place different amounts of weight on how far to take the kind of mythological attributes of the planets and, and the kind of... So so Vettius Valens, for example, talks about the, plan- the characteristics of the planets and he uses some characteristics that are definitely drawn from the mythological characteristics. So the idea of Saturn as a kind of really malevolent, evil old man comes across really clearly in his in his astrological writing whereas for for Ptolemy who's a who's a bit more of a kind of wants to fit things into the philosophy of Aristotle he is more interested in talking about Saturn as cold and dry and having these physical qualities that are kind of sound a bit more sort of detached and scientific and and he he doesn't use the language of kind of oh he's e- Saturn's evil or he's an he's the kind of there's not the the personification in the same way, and so there's among some writers there is this attempt to kind of make it uh, much more grounded in in kind of natural philosophy. But I think it's very plausible that many people were were seeing a very strong link between the planets and and the gods. A, a, a thing that I really like, for example, it's Roman rather than Greek, but it's the same the same sort of philosophical universe. The the philosopher Seneca, in one of his plays. Um, 
the the Thyestes. There's this really horrible scene where um, Thyestes, this mythological figure, has just been tricked into eating a pie which has bits of his own children in it. And there's this kind of mad scene where the sun is is going through the sky and the sun sees what's happening and just decides, no, that's enough of this day. That's horrible. I can't deal with it. And the sun just just like hurries on through the rest of the day and just brings the day to a close. And I'd always thought this was a piece of, you know, this is just being dramatic. It's just setting the scene. It's just a kind of literary kind of trope. And actually, if you look into, so Seneca was a was a Stoic and one of the, the Stoic philosophical, uh, one of their, their views about the structure of the universe was that human souls were made of the same stuff as the heavens, this stuff pneuma. And if you think in an astrological way that the, if you accept the claim that the heavens can have an effect on the earth, it's not so silly to think about it the other way around, that to think that things that happen in human souls, the ethical things that happen, might actually have some form of action at a distance, might have some effect on the planets. And I have now started reading that scene as, no, Thyestes causes the, the day to, to kind of come to a close. Again, it's 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 a sort of dramatised version still, but the that gives you a sort of of notion of the interconnection between between people and, and, and the heavens, which I think is quite interesting. You wrote a piece for the LRB last year. It was a review of review of a book by Greg Anderson, The Realness of Things Past, Ancient Greece and Ontological History, which argues that to understand the Athenians properly, we must recognise that it isn't just that they perceived the world differently, but that the world itself was different. And in that piece, you wrote quite a lot about about the gods and the idea that when the ancient Athenians saw a god, we have to take seriously the idea that they really did see a god. Whatever that might mean, we can't try and explain it away. And presumably that that's equally true of this, the, these astrological questions, that they lived in a geocentric universe and and maybe they're the, you know, the forcing someone to, tricking someone into eating his own children would have an effect on the on the sun is a I mean it, it it happened it sort of for them it happened and it doesn't we don't need to rationalize it in a way that fits into our ontology our way of understanding the world I think there's kind of a couple of different different levels about what it means to to kind of understand what the Greeks thought about things so there's if you just want to have a kind of sense of what's going on here then I think actually it's perfectly fine to translate those things into into our modern ways of thinking. And, and in fact, it's it's inevitable, right? You can't, there's no way we're going to be able to actually um, think in the way they did. Um, and at some level, what would be the point if we can't communicate to each other in, in, in kind of modern ways about, about those things? But there's also, I think what Anderson's book did really well is it, it raised the historic graphical question and and I don't necessarily sort of buy everything Anderson says but it raises the historiographical question of well also what are we actually doing in understanding the Greeks if if all we really want to do is tran- is translate them so there's 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 those two you, I think it's fine to do to have kind of different layers where sometimes no you're really trying to understand them on their own terms and that's where you're really trying to kind of dig into to what's what's happening whereas if you're just kind of thinking about it in a more everyday way or you're communicating to students maybe or or people introducing people to concepts then yeah you do want to do a bit of 
translating things across. So I, I, I give some lectures on Greek science. And one of the things I constantly think about is whether I should be giving a lecture course called Greek science, because half of the first lecture is devoted to talking about how science is not really a very good word to use when you're talking about Greek science. Um, But on the other hand, you know, when you post a a thing on a lecture list saying Greek science, then the students know roughly what's going to be in it, because it, it, it communicates something about which bits you expect when you turn up. But I suppose, but but one of the interesting things about Greek science is that there, it's no Hippocrates and Galen, the idea that the four humours of the body and you know no idea about the circulation of the blood that that has been superseded in a way by by modern science in a way that and obviously astronomy has as well that the Ptolemaic system, which actually was an amazingly accurate way of describing the movements of the heavens but then copernicus and galileo said yes but if we just if we, if we just swap it around so the earth is no longer at the center of this system it has, it's we, it's actually much simpler that the planets don't mysteriously move backwards they can just because they're not going around the earth and all the rest of it but at the same time it's i mean the fact we're able to date those documents you're talking about earlier because within their system the their, the ancient greek astronomy is still accurate and, and true, even if you can use the word true. And in, and in fact, Ptolemy's, yeah, as you say, Ptolemy's system was incredibly accurate. I mean, the, the one planet it didn't work very well for was Mercury, because Mercury has, because Mercury's so close to the sun, it has a, a kind of gravitational effect that, that was also not really understood by Copernicus or even Kepler. That took until Einstein to understand why Mercury's orbit is so eccentric. And and you can do astronomy with Ptolemy for hundreds of years. And in fact, that's what people did do until Copernicus came along and, and you know, took the Earth away from the centre of the universe and, and put the sun at the centre of the universe. And that really does change everything. I think it's I think it is quite natural to think of the sun at the centre of the universe. Uh, sorry, the Earth at the centre of the universe. And... Um, there's this nice story uh, about Wittgenstein, about um, Anscombe. She meets Wittgenstein one day. This is in, comes up in her introduction to Wittgenstein's Tractatus. And he says, why do people say that it's natural to think that the sun went round the earth rather than that the earth turns on its axis? And, Wittgen, uh, and Anscombe quite naturally replies, well, I, I guess because it looks like the sun goes round the earth. And Wittgenstein comes back with, well, yeah, but what would it look like if it looked as if the Earth turned on its axis? And this is sort of celebrated as a philosophical one-liner, but I think it it asks something really quite interesting. And I think many of us are, are quite used to thinking of the way things look and the way things actually are as being quite different. But if you don't particularly have that concept, um, then, yeah, of course it's natural to think of the Earth as the centre of the universe. But there's also a sense in which actually a geocentric perspective that we do still have that, all right? We know that the Earth goes around the sun and we know that the sun is on one spiral arm of the Milky Way and we know that, that the Milky Way is just one among billions of galaxies in an expanding universe. But at the same time, it's where we are and it's where we're looking from. Yeah. And in a sense, you you can't make sense of the universe that we're looking at unless you know that we're looking at it from Earth. So there is a sense in which we do still have a geocentric perspective. Yeah, and for lots of things, it's just useful to use geocentric coordinates for satellites and for 
you know, it would be insane to use heliocentric coordinates for things when, when functionally, yeah, the Earth is the centre of the system. I think we're quite good as as modern people at flipping between perspectives about what's what it's really like and what it appears to be like. And that's an example of one, right? That it's you think, oh yeah, of course, when you remember it, sure, you can picture the the solar system and the sun at the middle, and we're just kind of going round. But but how much is that really structuring how we think about? You know, I mean, functionally, I think I think of the Earth at the centre. Totally not at all. The sun comes up in the morning and goes down in the evening. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that question of the the geocentric. Um the geocentric universe and the models of it and the, the Antikythera mechanism, yeah, which is this ancient Greek piece of kit with gears in it that was found at the bottom of the sea 100 years ago, which is thought to be a model of the of the solar system with the Earth at the centre. And recently, research at UCL, if you assume you've seen that, the paper, and that they've reconstructed it. That's a physical evidence, assuming that even if their reconstruction isn't exactly right, that's more or less what, what it must have been. Could that have been used for astrological predictions? Would that have been used for astrology that you turn the handle? We're here now. You turn the handle, and everything moves around, and you can then. I think it. I think it could have been. I mean, so one distinction that's probably useful to draw is between making a model for illustrative purposes that doesn't necessarily have to be accurate, and making a model that is in fact accurate and is trying to represent the movements of the planets really accurately, and. The Antikythera mechanism probably is a very accurate one, and the way the gears are done suggests that it's actually trying to represent the periods of the planets. And we know that there were models made, much less accurate models made, that were made more as a kind of visual aid, so like a little orrery or things like that, which show you the kind of the type of movement of the planets, but they're not necessarily actually accurate to the movement, so you can't use them for predicting. And that's also the same for mathematical models. So Ptolemy's model definitely is trying to fit to actual data and definitely is trying to actually capture the the movements of the planets. But there's earlier models than Ptolemy's, including one by um, a guy called Eudoxus, who, as far as we know, was at Plato's Academy and was probably sort of contemporary of Plato, maybe taught Aristotle. And he did this model that's very different from the Ptolemaic model. So the Ptolemaic model works on you've got big circles and little so a, a thing moving around a big circle and it it is going in little circles as it moves around the big circle and that's how you get those loops almost like a fairground rise you're on the so the arms go round and the little chairs spin round on the ends of the arms right yeah. um and that's very flexible but but this guy Eudoxus did a very different thing which is that it, it's going to be incredibly hard to imagine this so i i recommend you look up a, a, a there's there's loads of really good animations of it on youtube but it's Essentially, it's two circular motions and they're offset at each other. I'm now doing a kind of gesture with my hands, but that's also really unhelpful. But they're two circular motions and they're offset to each other. And you're tracing the combined motions. And you've got to take my word for this, that you end up with a kind of figure of eight, like an infinity symbol. And that's called a hippopede. And what you do is you then add another circular motion at a different angle and that stretches that hippopede out and you get these kind of, again, these loops, which is what you get when you get retrograde motion. And the Eudoxin model, it's basically almost impossible that they would have done 
fit that to actual data because it's just so the geometry of it's so complicated even imagining how that actually works is incredibly complicated but trying to fit that to observed data is just is just mad people did later try and do it but i i think it's very unlikely they were doing it then but the point there i think about what eudoxus was trying to do was that he was trying to show that you can get this loop the loop motion in the planets through just the combination of circular motions and it was very important as a kind of I guess almost a theological thing, um, certainly for Plato, and and it became very much the case for for many other Greek philosophers that that circular motion was seen to be the kind of most perfect motion because a circle is has no start and end, it's everlasting, it's sort of representative of the divine, and so they were really kind of ideologically committed to the idea that you should be able to represent all of the motions of the heavens just using circles. And so this model by Eudoxus was probably just a way, I say just, a way to show that kind of conceptually, but was probably never meant to be fitted to actual data. So it probably couldn't ever actually be used for prediction. And so that's a long way of saying, yes, the Antikythera mechanism actually probably could be used, but there is a there is a big difference between sort of we can demonstrate to people how, how the motions work. And yes, we can actually use this to actually calculate things. The other thing that's kind of fun about the Antikythera mechanism is there's there's some mention in Cicero of a of a similar kind of thing and a similar kind of mechanism. It's not it's not clear whether it's the same object or or a kind of relation, but and he's talking about it basically as being a kind of as kind of a display object, a sort of thing that you know a rich guy would have on his on his coffee table and he'd show you and he'd be like, oh yes, and look, I know all this about this and I know about I can show you when the next eclipse will be and so on. And there are, we do have other traces of astrology being used in that way. There's this really fun text uh, by the Roman writer Petronius, and he has this scene where the, the kind of hapless protagonists um, go to this dinner, this guy, this freedman, um, Tramalchio, they go to dinner at his house. It's It was made into a film, actually. Fellini made a, a version of it. Um, they go to this guy's house and this guy is showing off how much he knows about everything and he has this dinner um, that he sets out and it's a kind of astrologically or zodiac-themed zodiac dinner where there's like a different food stuff to represent every sign of the zodiac and he starts sort of holding forth about all these different astrological things. And and because it's a satirical text, there, you know, Petronius is having a, having a laugh at him, but it's it does give you an indication that... that probably being able to say a little bit about astrology was probably quite um quite a good marker of of kind of high culture in that way and i think thinking of the antikythera mechanism as potentially yes something that was used for very accurate demonstrations but also potentially something that was just a big talking point is yeah i think that's fruitful and presumably it was very, it was, uh, it was an ex- incredibly expensive yeah thing to have made so as a status I don't know if like <laughs> rich people these days have tele- telescopes at the tops of their houses that you can. Well, the telescopes are actually quite quite an interesting one for that, I think, as well, because I think people do sometimes having a telescope is is more like, ah, oh, look, I'm interested in the world than necessarily you're a stargate. I'm not saying everyone who has a telescope isn't the stargazer. I'm sure there are. <laughs> that question of the of circular mo- m- movements and the idea that the Earth is round and that Eratosthenes was able to measure the circumference of the Earth to a certain degree of accuracy. So was the sense that the Earth, the round Earth, was as it were flat and circular, or the idea that it was a, a globe? 
When did that idea? It was widely believed to be a globe from um, the kind of classical period onwards. So let's say 400 BC ish. The some of the earliest writers, the, some of the pre-Socratics, as they're called, did talk about it as flat. So we have this really cool cosmology it's just we don't actually have the original text we've just got sort of snippets in other writers from from much later but this this early greek natural philosopher this guy anaximander who talks about the earth as being a kind of a a disc basically it has a a little bit of thickness but it's it's flat on top and it's a kind of it's a disc and actually this is it's a really fun it's a really kind of weird cosmology because he says we've got this this earth that's a disc and then three times the the diameter of that out we've got a kind of band of this kind of crystalline material he's very vague about what what that actually is and then also six times and then also nine times out another these other bands of crystalline material and he says there are holes in the crystalline material and you can see some of the kind of cosmic fire in them and those are the planet. So the outermost one is the kind of fixed backdrop of the stars. And then one of them is the sun and one of them is the moon. And they're, they're these, these things. And it's very unclear from the text what he's actually picturing. And is he talking about these, are these things parallel to the earth? That can't make sense because then you wouldn't be able to see them. Are they at the 23 degree angle that everything's at maybe? Why are they all stacked up? There's a lot of these things when you start to read, uh, especially from the earliest period, of stuff where the evidence is often very fragmentary. When you start to read Greek scientific texts, it's quite easy to gloss over those things and be like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. Yeah, fine. And then when you start to actually try and draw it out and think about, no, but what's he actually saying here? Sometimes they they become very mysterious, these things, or you realise how how unclear it really is. And that example is one of my is one of my favourites because it's it's just quite bonkers. And I think to come back to Boxer, that's that's another thing that that book does very well. Is it? It doesn't try and gloss over the weirdness of some things in astrology. Boxer tries to explain things in a way that lots of books on ancient astronomy and astrology don't. And it's a kind of I think it's a quirk of the way the history of the disciplines unfolded, which is lots of the people who work on Greek astronomy have a very mathematical background. And so for them, they're like, oh, yeah, I know what the ecliptic is. I know how this works. Oh, yeah, this, this, that. And if you're reading it, especially if you've come from a humanities background, sometimes you're like, I just don't even understand the basics of this. And so you just you flip past the diagrams when they happen and you you learn about the other bits around the side. And to have really clear explanations that just say, okay, this is what they're going on about, that's really great. But it also, it does reveal sometimes how how odd and how unfamiliar some things in Greek science are. And that I suppose that's linked to the Anderson book too, that, that sometimes when you re-examine these texts and you stop thinking about the Greeks as our kind of forefathers you read things and you're like, hang on, what are they talking about here? And I think that's that's worthwhile. And we have to assume that it's not that just that Anaximander's description, it's not that he wasn't very good at describing what he wanted to describe, that that description made perfect sense to him. Yeah, I mean, again, this is, this is him quoted in later writers, so there's always the possibility that they've just got him wrong. But yeah, I think it... I think similar to the Anderson thesis that you have to just take these things at face value and see what you can get by working with that, at least as a, at least for your first go, 
is really important there because I think it's very easy to just be like, oh yeah, he just you know he just said some weird thing because they're all it's this period where they're all coming up with weird you know solutions for things. One of the best explanations I've seen of the Anaximander thing is um, a guy called Robert Hahn who um, wrote a book about Anaximander and architects and architectural practice at the time when lots of um, these big early kind of temple complexes were being built, and he said, well. Anaximander's probably looking at column construction. I didn't know this. Columns, most Greek columns are made up of like lots of segments stacked on top of each other. They're not actually one big thing, which obviously makes sense when you think about it because it's, you know, that how would that work? But, you know, um, but they're made up of these sort of drum-shaped bits. And a lot of these early architectural texts use the size of a column in any given building or complex as a unit to then do diagrams for the the rest of the thing. So, you know, one, it's going to be like five columns wide or this thing will be nine columns wide. And Hahn argues, and this is not a kind of, this is, there's some controversy around this argument, but he says, well, how about if an Aximander is saying, well, the earth is one of these column diameters and then the fixed stars are three times out, the next thing is six times out, the next, and it's a kind of microcosm, macrocosm thing it still doesn't explain the orientation of the rings, but it makes you think it it makes it less weird that he's just giving these apparently arbitrary dimensions. And it makes you think, okay, maybe he's thinking in this kind of microcosmic, macrocosmic structure. One thing that I've never seen adequately explained is why the planets all move around in the same on the same disc. You know, if you think about the planets, there's no reason they should all be lined up. I mean there is if you think about modern astronomy because sure it's on a spiral galaxy and it's there's that's formed by gravity and so on but i i've never seen an explanation in a greek text and maybe i just haven't found it yet for why are all the planets lined up yeah a very good question claire hall thank you very much thank you you can read claire hall's piece in the current issue of the lrb along with claire wills on ireland's mother and baby homes james walcott on philip roth and francis gooding on what it's like to be a fungus